Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. And today we are looking at Acts 28, 1 through 16, continuing the story, part one, the invincible Christian. We're going to see Paul survive a deadly snake bite to his hand, as well as the hand of God healing many on Malta. And we're going to see how we are invincible as believers until Christ calls us home or he returns, whichever comes first. And due to that, we are free to serve God's purposes. And in that process, God blesses us with courage and compassion and connectedness in the body of Christ. Christians are invincible, free to serve the purposes of God with courage, compassion, and connectedness. So I want to invite you to stand as I read God's word. I'll be reading the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. We'll read the first 16 verses of this chapter. And yes, we are in the home stretch of Acts. I have preached 73 sermons in this series so far. If you followed it much, you can probably rattle off the main idea in your sleep. Christ's work through his witnesses for his purposes. So let's read the word. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. When they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we arrived at Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we had come to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts today, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. All for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As we have gone through Acts verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week after week, there are five major themes that emerge. First and foremost, the risen and returning Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the authoritative word of God. Third, the Holy Spirit. 
Fourth, the sovereign purposes of God. And fifth, Christ's chosen witnesses. And I hope that those themes, if you've been with us in this series at all, uh, any amount of time really, I hope that they've been firmly anchored in your hearts. My deepest prayer, my deepest hope is that, that your life has been changed as you have been exposed to the book of Acts. I know mine has. We think of Christ's chosen witnesses, and it's a privilege to be chosen and used by the God of the universe. And this is such an amazing story. The whole book of Acts is an amazing story, and what we've seen in chapter 27 and now into chapter 28 is pretty amazing. Paul survives the perilous storm, a promised shipwreck, and goes through pounding seas to the shores of Malta, almost to Italy, almost to Rome. God has promised him that he will get there. Jesus is preserving his witness for his purpose. And there's a lot of suspense and intrigue in this story. If you like dramas, you are in your wheelhouse. Uh, the su suspense continues into chapter 28. Uh, Acts does not end on a thud. No sooner does Paul make it safely to the island of Malta, to the shore, than he gets bit by a poisonous snake. And everybody expects him to die from this snake bite. But God continues to protect Paul. Not only does he survive the venomous viper, but he, he really engages in some very significant ministry on Malta. Luke was eyewitness to all of it. He saw everything. Fellow passenger, fellow traveler with Paul on this journey. And you can see by the map how far they've come. Chapter 27, uh, from Caesarea to Crete, Crete towards Malta and to the shores of Malta. Chapter 27, verse 27 tells us they spend 14 days adrift at sea after they leave Fairhavens, and they travel a wind-driven 476 miles from Cotta to Malta. And there's all these graphical nautical details, and there's wild wind and surging sea and harbors and anchors and this nightmare storm and this shipwreck on a reef. What we saw through all of that is that God always does some things by his power and faithfulness. There's some things that God always does. By way of review, first thing we saw was that God always leads us. And he doesn't just lead us, but he empowers us to lead when called upon. He gives us strength to lead. So Paul is leading by example. He's a prisoner, but he's leading by example as he's on this ship. The second thing we saw is that God always delivers us, and he sometimes and in our case, I guess, often rescues us from danger. You're here today because you've been rescued by God many, many times. But he always ultimately delivers his people and sometimes rescues from danger. So Paul is trusting God, and what happens is God promises him, and all are brought safely to land. No one dies, just like God says. The third thing we see is that God always reassures us by his word. His word is powerful, and he reassures us. Paul didn't keep it to himself. He shared the word of God. He says to the people, I believe that it will be exactly as I have been told, exactly how God has said. This is how it's going to happen. No one's going to die. And the thing we saw last week that God always does is he always hears us as believers who pray. We, even in the midst of, of things like shipwrecks and storms, God always hears us when we pray. And so Paul prays, and he prays for daybreak to come in the midst of the storm. And he gives thanks in front of everyone as he's encouraging them to eat. And we see that he is praying for what God has promised. He is praying for the promises of God. 
Something that we ought to be praying for. What we saw, kind of a big idea, is that no matter what happens in your life, if you're a believer, your hope remains steadfast. Your hope remains anchored because it is anchored in the promises of God. It is anchored in God's faithfulness and his promise of power and protection, and, and he's always with us. He, he promises us his presence, so there is, there is no reason for the, for the Christian to fear. Now, there was another time when some followers of Christ were in a boat uh, on, on a stormy sea, and the boat was about to get swamped by the waves, and, and Jesus stands up, and he rebukes the wind and the waves, and the sea becomes calm, just still. You see it in Luke chapter 8, verse 24. And, and Jesus could have easily done that here in this storm. But he allows it to rage. Sometimes he allows that storm to rage in your life, the proverbial storm. In the midst of the storm, though, God gives assurance that he knows what they're going through, just like he knows what you're going through right now, just like he always knows what you're going through. And he gives assurance of his awareness of their plight, but also he promises protection. He promises them that he will do something. And isn't it awesome to know that the promises of God never fail? That you can't go to one of the promises of God in the Bible and say, God might not do that. But we know over and over and over again, God always keeps his promises. And it's awesome to have that assurance. It's awesome to know that truth. And based on that assurance, based on that truth, Paul and everyone on board ship land on Malta. No one dies. And Paul remains alive even though he gets bitten by this you know, venomous viper. And he makes it all the way to Rome in spite of all the opposition. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises. And because Jesus promised to build his church, and he continues to do so in spite of the world's resistance and rejection. This is what happens. This is what God does in the life of a believer. He will not always rescue you out of danger, but he will deliver you. But the big truth we really see here in Acts 28, the beginning of Acts 28, is that Christians are invincible. Christians are invincible until Christ returns or calls us home, whichever comes first. And as such, we are free to serve Christ without fear, but with courage and without hatred, with, with compassion for people and, and not alone, actually connected in the body of Christ, connected with other believers. This is what Paul is modeling in these first 16 verses in, in Acts 28. So look with me first at the first six verses here. We see Paul's courage Paul's courage. Verse 1 tells us that after they had all been safely brought through the shipwreck, these survivors find themselves on the island of Malta, 17 miles long, 10 miles wide, 60 miles off the south tip of Sicily. Literally, they land at what is now known as St. Paul's Bay, which is not the normal port. Valletta was the normal port, so they didn't recognize it. They didn't know where they had landed. They realize they're on Malta, or Melita, as the Phoenicians called it. The Phoenicians were the, the, the mariners of their time, the navigators of the Mediterranean. and They named it Melita, which means refuge or escape. And so they land here, and since it's like they're saying, well, the name of this island is Refuge. We have escaped by the grace of God. This is now our earthly refuge. We're here safe on the shore. 
And so here they are, safe on the shore, and the first thing they experience is some good old-fashioned pagan hospitality. The Maltese natives express extraordinary kindness, an unusual amount of kindness towards them. So they kindle a fire for them, verse 2, and they're trying to keep them all warm. They're welcoming all 276 of the survivors. They're stranded. They're trying to keep them warm during rain and cold. Now, usually we say, well, we Californians can't relate. Oh, yes, we can now. Oh, we can relate to the storm and the cold and the wind and the rain. Here, they're cold and exhausted, and they're visitors, and it's probably mid-November. They've gone through a biting hurricane. What we see here in the kindness of the Maltese is that God takes note of those who take care of his own. God takes note of those who are kind to his own. To Abraham in Genesis 12, God says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In Matthew 25, the the judgment of the sheep and the goats was based on how they treated God's people. God blesses people who bless his people. Now, some amazingly good things happen to the Maltese because of their kindness, because they have shown beyond normal, extraordinary kindness. We talk about the depravity of man, where mankind is totally depraved, that every person is bad enough to be sent to hell for their sins. And I've made the, the distinction, we're not utterly depraved. Utter depravity means that you are as bad as you could be, but we could all get worse. The total depravity of man is true, but we must not forget that even within pagan culture who's not exposed to the truth of the gospel, there is something in a person who makes them, that makes them want to do what is right in a time of need. They, they want to engage in kind deeds in time of need. So when there's a hurricane, all sorts of people go and help because it's like the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Romans 2 tells us, Romans 2, verse 14, 15, and 27, says, When the heathen who do not have law do by nature the things contained in it, they show the work of the law written on their hearts. That's a classic illustration of God's uh, internal revelation to pagans. So they know what to do in a time of distress. They, They know to do good. Why is it that some of the most famous philanthropists ever were unbelievers? Because they they know right and wrong, and they know that they should do good. And they might do it for the wrong reasons, but they're still doing good. What's the point? They instinctively know it is good to do right. You might remember back before you were a believer. I became a believer at about age 20, and so I know that I knew right and wrong. But I made up my own morality. I said, well, I do this. This is okay. I don't do that because that's bad. Now, people who do this that I say is okay, they're good. People who do that that I say is bad is, are bad. That's, that's, that's mythology. That's, that's superstition. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I was coming up with my own morality. This is what the Maltese did. They knew instinctively to do right and wrong. Now, they knew it was good to do right, Because God has revealed to mankind a sense of morality and a sense of right and wrong. And so they do go beyond the normal human kindness for the sake of these strangers. So we say, nice move Maltese. But their kindness kind of stops there at this point in the story. Pick it up at verse 3. Paul takes some initiative. He's, He's a leader. And he unselfishly serves by 
gathering up a bundle of sticks to keep the fire going. Paul's okay doing the little menial job. He's okay being the servant. He didn't give orders. He goes and gets sticks. Need for more sticks for the fire? He goes and gets them. There's something about a leader who was was willing to do the menial, humble task. Like Jesus washing the disciples' feet in John 13 to stoop to meet the needs of other people. If you think you're too important to do that, then you're not as important as you think. True spiritual leadership does exactly what it expects of other people. This is exactly what Jesus gave as a model to us. Matthew 20, 28. He says, the Son of Man, that's his favorite name for himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Paul gets sticks to stoke the fire to warm the people. Always serving, sacrificing. Unfortunately, one of the sticks is alive. I guess it's a frozen, poisonous snake. You know, it's cold, it's wintertime, He picks up a bundle of sticks, and all of a sudden, as he puts the sticks on the fire, a venomous viper jumps out due to the heat. It like wakes up because of the heat, and it latches on Paul's hand. In fact, the natives, verse 4, the natives are, are, are watching this, and they see the snake just dangling by its fangs off of Paul's hand. Luke's a doctor. He uses a word that literally is is pointing to this, that that the snake is is hanging, dangling by its fangs, injecting venom into Paul's hand. Here's Paul. He's gone through a deadly storm. He's gone through a horrendous shipwreck. He's going to die on the beach from a, a snake bite. That's what they're saying to themselves. In fact, they say it, it's in the imperfect tense. It means they're doing it repeatedly. They're, they're, they keep on saying, it's like spreading like wildfire through the crowd. This guy's a murderer. This guy's a murderer. He escaped the sea, but not from this. Justice has not allowed him to live. Justice was the proper name of the goddess DK, mythological daughter of Zeus, personified here as Justice. They believed that she watched over the human affairs and reported everything you did wrong to Zeus so that if you're guilty, you pay for your crimes. So they say justice has not allowed him to live. A foregone conclusion in their minds that he's going to die. That's their theology. It's coming out. They have a sense of morality, but it's a twisted one, and they say this guy is deserving of death. That's why he got bitten by the snake. Romans 1.18 tells us the wrath of God is unleashed because men know the truth. And what can be known about God is manifested to them because God has shown it to them. And what happens with the Maltese, while they're extraordinarily kind and welcoming them on the beach and getting the fire going, they had made their gods to fit their morality. The Maltese allowed infidelity in marriage, but they wouldn't allow murder. They fit the God to meet themselves and to fit to themselves, and they realize that good and evil has consequences, just like Adam and Eve had the knowledge of good and evil. But God's going to hold them responsible. By the way, here's how it works. If you're not a believer and you come up with your own morality, some of it maybe makes sense and some of it doesn't, if you believe the 
the revelation that God gives you that he exists, and you accept that, he is going to continue to reveal himself to you to the point that you will hear the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, that you are lost without him, and that Jesus took your place on the cross and died and was buried and rose again. But if you reject him and come up with your own morality, you're going to be judged for that. You're going to condemn yourself. And this is what happens with the Maltese. Now, they call Paul a murderer. Paul actually was a murderer in his former life as a persecutor of Christians. He admitted it in chapter 9 of Acts. He admits it in Galatians 1.13. I was formerly a murderer and a persecutor. He knew he was worthy of death for his many sins. He knew he was worthy of death for, the, for his depravity. The Holy Spirit spoke Romans 6.23 through him. The wages of sin is death. What you deserve for your sins is to be separated from God forever. That verse continues on, but the, great, but, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. See, Paul knew that he had been saved by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, and not by his own works. Verse 5, Paul shakes the snake into the fire, literally shakes it off and suffers no harm, which is a fulfilled prophecy, by the way. Luke chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus had sent the 70 out. They return with joy. They say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. We saw Satan falling like lightning. Jesus had said, I, I, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and nothing will hurt you. But don't rejoice in, in this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, some people will say, well, I get to play with snakes and even get bit and not die. No, that's foolishness. This was not for today. Don't put God to the test. You, you eat poison, you'll die. You play with poisonous snakes, you'll get bit and you might die. This was purely for the apostolic era to confirm his apostles, their divine source, their words, the gospel message. No, oh, uh, Paul just shakes, flicks that snake away. It's unharmed. By the way, the snake will be flicked off, Romans 16 tells us, verses 19 and 20. We're told to be wise as serpents, and innocent as good, right? Be wise in what is good, innocent in what is evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But what happens here is that the natives are not aware that Paul is unharmed by the bite. And so verse 6, here's what they're doing in their reaction. Here's their reaction. We're just going to watch, and we're just going to wait for him to swell up and suddenly die. Conspicuously absent is any attempt to help him. They wait a long time, and nothing happens, so they change their minds, and they say, okay, he's a god. Pagan theology is very fickle. Human hearts are very fickle. They wait a long time, nothing happens, they change their minds, say he's a god. Everyone before thought, wow, this guy must be a really bad guy who deserves death. Justice has not allowed him to live. They're superstitious like that, just like people today are superstitious. So he lives, and they go to the other extreme. Well, instead of saying, wow, he's such a bad guy, now they say, no, wow, he's such a great guy. In fact, he's a god. The pagans were polytheistic. They recognized the supernatural power when they saw it. Here's a man escaping certain death. The power of God must be present. So all the natives think that Paul is a god. 
They had rejected the true God. They perverted the knowledge of God into idolatry. They're very wrong. They have a twisted system of justice lacking the most important elements, mercy and grace. God's justice is merciful and gracious. But the natives elevate themselves above Paul. They can't admit their own wickedness. They can't admit that there's wrath that they deserve for their sin. And so they wait for Paul to die instead of helping him. This is not the kind of love that Jesus showed. Jesus came to seek and to save and to give life to those deserving death. Ephesians 2 tells us we were dead in our transgressions and sins, and God makes us alive together with Christ when we come to faith in Christ, all due to his grace and his mercy. But a performance-based religion basically just panders to pride. And if you're, they would say, well, you're prosperous in this life, good, congratulate yourself because you've earned it. Anyone who's de- you know, devastated from the consequences of sin, they would be accused by, by these religious fakers of getting what they deserve. God's true religion is compassionate, cares for the downtrodden, cares for the weakest and most vulnerable. James 1.27 tells us that, that true religion is to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The natives were without that truth. Their you know, faithless, fickle attitude demonstrates the need for them to see the truth of Jesus Christ. And they couldn't see it at that point. Now Paul, for his part, was courageous in the, in the face of immense crisis. Think of all the things he'd been through. Getting chased out of town, people trying to kill him. Going through the storm, going through the shipwreck. Now the snake bite. But he endures, he presses on with courage. Courage. Next, you see his compassion. Look at verses 7 to 10. God is publicly healing people here. Here's how it went. The number one guy on Malta, named Publius, he had a large estate, chief man of the island. He basically receives them and lodges them, all 276 of them. What a, what a big estate he must have had. Big place. Lodges 276 people for three days. Shows hospitality to strangers. Because that was in the Maltese system of morality. And verse 8 tells us the father of Publius is very sick. He has this recurring gastric fever and intestinal disease. It was known at that time that there were microbes in the goat's milk on Malta, and so it would really mess you up internally. And here's what Paul does. He gives us a perfect example of pastoral care. He visits the man. He prays for him. He puts his hand on him, trusting God to heal him. I've been in pastoral ministry for 32 years. By the grace of God, I have visited a lot of people. It is not my favorite thing to go to a hospital to visit someone who's sick. Hospitals smell, don't they? But I've visited many people. I have prayed for many people. I have asked God to heal many people. Lord, do whatever you want in this person's life. So what happens here is that when that happens, people all over the island who've got diseases, they come to be cured. And here's the power of God just unleashed. And, and it's been identified. And here's Paul as God's agent of that power. 
Miracles are happening here. And they're corroborating the testimony of the gospel. Obviously, Paul preached. Peter preached, and they, miracles would happen, and Paul would preach, the miracles would happen, because God used Paul to give credence to the gospel message in a place where there had been no previous gospel witness. This is God affecting miracles, much like he did at the beginning of the book of Acts, in a place where there has been no gospel witness to give credence to the message, to confirm its authenticity. Here's God doing signs and wonders, saying, this is my true grace. And here's Paul, completely unlike the natives of Malta. He demonstrates true grace to the Maltese through his words and his deeds. He's he's showing them the grace of God. The father of Publius, the Roman governor of Malta, becomes bedridden, again, with that fever and sickness. And here's what Paul didn't do. He said, well, you know, he deserves this. You know, they treated me like this. I'm going to treat them like this. He deserves to suffer. No, instead what he does is he helps. Is a whole different set of morality based on, on the cross, based on Christ. And so Paul visits him and prays for him, prays for God to heal him, and it happens. And, and then all these people start coming to Paul, and presumably Dr. Luke as well, for help. This is what God wants believers to do. Believers should be the most compassionate people on the block. Isn't always true, but should be true. Colossians 3.12 tells us, put on as God's chosen beloved ones a heart of compassion. You want to help when people are suffering. You want to help when people are in crisis. So Publius' dad gets healed. All heaven breaks loose on the island. They get blessed immensely. And then look at verse 10. As a result of all the things that these believers are doing, they get honored greatly. And even when they are about to set sail, the people of Malta put whatever they need on board the ship. This is pretty awesome. The question you got to ask is, were any of them believers at this point? I think yes. Let me tell you why. Three months of preaching the gospel is either going to make Christians or enemies. Think about Paul. Places he went and he preached the gospel, they are chasing him out of town. They're trying to kill him. They're coming up with assassination plots. Here, the Maltese say, we love you. What do you need? Now, in this winter layover in Malta, uh, also conspicuously absent in these first 16 verses is any explicit, implicit mention of the gospel or the word of God. But you see it in verses 17 through 31 very clearly. You've got to remember, Acts is a continuous story. Luke is an awesome historian. He's not giving us every detail. So it is very safe for us to assume, as this story continues, Paul kept doing on Malta what he did everywhere else he went. Preached the gospel. He stays through the winter, three months, Imagine how many Bible studies they had with the Apostle Paul. People coming to faith in Christ as God opens their heart to the gospel. And here is a relationship with Paul and his companions. And then they're hearing the word of God. This is a great example, great picture of evangelism in the context of relationships. Now the tradition is that the first pastor of the Maltese Christians was Publius and that his house was where the church met. When someone comes to faith in Christ, they do so because they hear of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. They hear about Christ's sacrifice on the cross in their place, shedding his blood, his death, his resurrection, his promised return. So I think it is safe to assume that this is what happened. 
They're serving the people of Malta with the love of Christ. It's very remarkable, and they're honored with respect on their departure. They're giving all they need. They had lost everything in the shipwreck. By the grace of God, they gave and ended up receiving more. Just like Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. They freely gave and freely received. Compassionate. Last, you're going to see Paul's connectedness in the body of Christ, which might almost seem like a footnote in this passage, but it really isn't. Verses 11 through 16, they're about to head to Rome. Uh, The group waits three months until the end of winter. It's, again, safe to sail. And they get on another Alexandrian grain ship headed for Rome. The ship, and, and Luke's giving some detail here to identify the ship. The ship is decorated with the figurehead of the twin sons of Zeus, Castor and Pollux. Uh, They were worshipped as Gemini in the constellation. Uh, They were known as patrons of navigation, mythical sons of Jupiter. Sailors looked to them for protection. Totally false, totally mythology. They're on this ship, verse 12. They they sail 100 miles to Syracuse, Syracuse on the east of Sicily. And then they stay three days. From there, they make a circuit and arrive at Regium. And after one day, This is an amazing act of God here. After one day, if you remember how slow they were going before in the storm, one and a half miles an hour, maybe 35, 36 miles in a day. After one day, a south wind springs up. On the second day, they came to Puteoli. Now, they go 180 miles, two days, to Puteoli, Bay of Naples. Now it's Pozzuoli in, in Italy. But they find their brothers. They find a church. They find believers. Verse 14, and they invite them to come stay with them for seven days. Paul has probably never met these Christians in Puteoli before, but he is immediately invited to stay with them for a week. And then this phrase, and so we came to Rome. It's awesome. After all of this, Paul finally comes to Rome. It fulfills Jesus' promise to Paul in Acts 23, 11, that he's going to get to Rome. Goes through the storm, shipwreck, the snake bite. And then, as soon as everyone in the countryside around Rome hear that Paul is there, believers, they travel long distances to greet him. The market of Appius was 43 miles away. Three inns was 33 miles away. Those are over a day's journey on foot. Verse 15 tells us, the brothers there come to meet us, and they come a long way to meet Paul. They're showing Christian hospitality. It's one of the signs of true fellowship in Christ and close bonds within the family of God. And on seeing them, Paul takes courage. Paul thanks God and takes courage, which seems to indicate that he at this point was discouraged. You might be tempted to say, wait a minute, Paul's gone through a A storm, a shipwreck, and snake bite, and he got discouraged? What's his problem? His problem was he's just like us. We got peaks and pits. And you might be on a mountaintop one moment and in a a pit the next. And then verse 16, when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Can you imagine being the soldier that's chained to Paul's wrist? Imagine the things you would have heard. Every day, praises of God. Here's Paul allowed to stay by himself instead of in a prison. Gives him some freedom and flexibility as much as you can have, chained to a soldier. 
But he's got courage. He shakes off the snake and goes through all this stuff. He's got compassion. He didn't do like others treated him. He visited and prayed for the man that was sick and all the people who came. But there was also connectedness. He was loved and supported by the church. Loved and supported by fellow Christians. I hope that you love and support fellow Christians. I didn't say I hope that you are loved and supported by fellow Christians because that goes along with it, right? It's a two-way street in the the body of Christ. But I think everything in the the Christian life calls for humility. And it calls for, for a humble sense of invincibility. That, that you would know on a daily basis you are invincible until Christ calls you home or he returns, whichever comes first. I want to ask you a couple questions, and hopefully it will help you in your life regarding courage and compassion and connectedness. First of all, in terms of courage, what's your courage quotient? We need to be cautious. It should be humble wisdom. You don't put God to the test and be unwise. You don't think you can handle poisonous snakes and survive. Paul didn't put God to the test. He didn't tempt the snake to bite him. It just happened, and God knew what he was going to do to show his power to the pagans. But Paul was courageous, and he had this humble boldness. He wasn't overly cautious, but he wasn't faithless either. He wasn't foolhardy. He wasn't faithless. He had courage. What about you? Sometimes I think in our culture, we call cowardice courageousness, and we call Biblical courageousness, foolishness. Do you say the things you know God wants you to say? I don't mean the things that you know you're going to regret. I mean the things that you know God wants you to say. Do you do do that? Do you walk through the open doors that God presents to you? God told Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. I'm with you always. I'm with you wherever you go. How's your courage How's your compassion quotient? I think the contrast between light and darkness is very evident in people's response to other people's pain and crisis. As we see here, you cannot, you cannot separate kindness and compassion like the Maltese did. Compassion and kindness and mercy are related. The natives had no mercy. They didn't try to help Paul. They watched to see him die. They were sinfully superstitious. They weren't compassionate. But a believer is called to an entirely different mindset, an entirely different worldview. The people who have been made new have a different outlook. If you've been made new by the blood of Christ, you have a different outlook. You say, wow, since I've been chosen, I realize that's all of grace because I don't deserve it. And because I've been forgiven in Christ, I realize that's all because of the mercy of God, and then I'm able to forgive you. And because my life has been transformed... I'm not defined by my sins, but by Christ's righteousness. So I'm, never gonna, I'm not going to relate to myself on the basis of my sins, and I'm not going to relate to you on the basis of yours. I'm going to apply the merciful, gracious love of Jesus to my relationships. That's what a Christian says. Forgiveness and grace. And Think about Paul's picture of pastoral care. When it came time for Paul to either stand by and accuse someone of deserving what they got, or go help them, he chose to help. He didn't respond like they responded to him because he was displaying the the huge difference that Jesus in your life makes. Compassion. 
I don't know if you know it, but Friday was National Random Acts of Kindness Day. I'm not sure if you celebrated or you know, how, you, how you celebrated. But here's a question for you. How many people in the last month have you written to or called or visited and prayed for and encouraged in their time of distress? That will help you figure out your compassion quotient. How about your connectedness quotient? Paul tells the church, remember to do good, especially to those of the church. Remember to do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith. Think about Grace Church of Orange, and I am very thankful for the many ways that people go out of their way for each other. Kindness, support, generosity, humbly following Christ on a daily basis at school, work, home. You think about the body of Christ. A lot of people in the body of Christ, and I don't think it's merely an American thing, but I think that we tend to hyper-analyze these type of things. Think about the body of Christ. A lot of people will say, I didn't feel connected, therefore I went to go find another fellowship. So I guess y'all feel connected, huh? Is that right? Y'all feel connected? Not everyone does, right? Not everyone does. But think about the body of Christ. God has made us all dependent on him. Therefore, we are all interdependent on one another. And if we didn't have Christ in us, we would not be good for one another on a long-term basis. We'd ruin the relationships if we didn't have Christ in us, our hope of glory. And what happens is that Christ in us ministers to his body, the church, through us. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, you are, the, you are members of the body of Christ and individually members of it. So how do you get connected in a local assembly? How do you get connected in a church? The New Testament gives us 59 ways. Be at peace with each other. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Serve one another. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient with one another. Bear with one another in love. Be kind to one another. Be compassionate to one another. Forgive each other. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others as more important than yourself. Don't lie to each other. Teach each other. Admonish each other. Build each other up. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Do not slander one another. Do not grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Offer hospitality to each other without grumbling. I got to bring them a meal. Use whatever gifts you have received to serve one another. That's how you get connected in a church. And you don't wait and say, no one did this for me. This is, you do it. It's a two-way street. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big neighborhood. But I'm just saying, out of the, oh, by the way, out of the 59 one another's in the New Testament, four times we're told to greet one another. You should probably learn each other's names. Four times we're told to encourage each other because just like Paul, we, are, we tend to, be, to get discouraged. But guess what? 18 times we're told to love one another. 18 times. Let it increase. Let it overflow. Love each other deeply from your heart. That's connectedness. That's how you get connected. 
Let me ask you a question. If you count on your fingers every person from Grace Church of Orange with whom you made some kind of connection this week, how many hands would you need? Both of them? Would you need to break the rule and, you, and count with your feet too? You should latch on to 1 Thessalonians 2, 8 and 9. Paul says, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God but our very lives because you had become very dear to us. He didn't say, hey, nobody greeted me. Hey, nobody talked to me. That you became very dear to us. There's a mutual relationship going on. Some of you say, well, I've tried and tried and tried. Well, keep trying. Be courageous about it. Be compassionate about it. People have issues, don't they? Right? I mean, I know you do. And you know I do. You are invincible. You are invincible until Christ returns or calls you home. Whichever comes first. As such, you are free to serve God. Free to serve God not with fear, but courageously. You are free to serve God, not with hatred towards others, but compassionately. And you are free to serve God, not alone, but connected in the body. And it is not for your sake only. You'll get blessed, sure, but this is for Jesus and others. Don't wait until everything gets worked out in your life to live like this. Just start living like this right now. See what God will do. Deuteronomy 33, 25 says, As your days, so shall your strength be. Whatever, whatever day God gives you to live, he's going to give you the power to do what he wants you to do. And it's all possible because Christ made one sacrifice for all time that lasts forever because he went courageously to the cross in our place. And he had compassion on us because of, of the misery that sin brought into our lives. And he did the only thing that was possible to connect us with him forever died for our sins in our place. Therefore, if we're connected with Christ forever as believers, we're connected with, with each other as well. God said, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. If you're an unbeliever today, what better day than today than to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive the gift of eternal life, be forgiven, be accepted in Christ, have the Holy Spirit in you, and know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Jesus is saying, it's harvest time. You need to believe. And for believers here, you need to live in full assurance of faith. Here's what Hebrews tells us. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through his flesh. Therefore, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, it's when Christ returns, when you see the day drawing near. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You are invincible. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... Your grace, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that Christians are invincible until you come again or call us home, whichever comes first. And thank you for the freedom to serve your purposes under you, led by you, empowered by you, dependent upon you. We pray that you would be honored, you would be glorified in us and through us. In Christ's name, amen.